So last week we dealt uh, a great deal with basically our responsibility uh, to the government that in general uh, we are to be good citizens and we are to follow uh, the law of the Lamb uh, and do right and recognize that government uh, in general was established by God and that even bad governments uh, those individuals that run bad governments, they will be held accountable by God for the wrong they do. Um, but that government was instituted by God, and more or less, um, it was instituted by God to help to restrain evil. Uh, and so it's there for our good, even though like everything else in the world, uh, it has all been tainted and corrupted by sin. And we do need to remember that as we um, look at life, whether we're looking at things that we think are good, things that are bad, or, or indifferent, that the story of creation and the story of the fall of man in the first three chapters of Genesis help to form what is our meta-narrative. That is the overarching story, true story, that explains why the world is the way that it is. And so why is there corruption? Whether that whether that corruption is on the level of a government or whether that corruption is in dealing with individual uh, um, relationships, it exists because of sin. Sin is in the world. It has is, it is ruined everything that it has touched, and sin has touched everything. So even when we speak of redemption, remember that redemption is not only redeeming man from his sin, the idea of man being saved, man being forgiven, and man being uh, uh, taken to heaven when he dies, but also the whole world needs to be redeemed because the whole world was corrupted and tainted by sin. And thus, that's why there is death and decay in the world. That's why there are, you know, what we call these natural storms, all these things that are going on. Um, one of my, it's not an obsession that I have, but um, I check almost every day, uh, the number of earthquakes that take place around the world. It's a really high number. I mean, it's unbelievable, depending on how low you go on the scale. Uh, but even, if you, even if, you, if you begin at 2.5, which I'm not sure, you know, you might be able to feel it if it's right under your feet, so to speak. Um, but there are literally hundreds a day uh, when it comes to, uh, to the earthquakes. And then if you if you just take the earthquakes and the volcanic eruptions that are taking place, it's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, that's enough to make you panic. <laughs> you know, the world is coming to an end kind of a thing. Uh, but again, all of that is taking place. It's, it's kind of like, I guess you say, illustrates for us this idea of the earth groaning under the weight of sin and, until the day of redemption is when the Lord comes and everything would be set, set straight. And so as Christians, we... We look forward to that um, and want that day to come. So after Paul deals with that, again, remember that as, we, as we're looking at these chapters, that it's primarily uh, application. Uh, there's a lot of time, a lot, throughout many of these places, there's just a lot of short sentences and phrases that are, that's just like, this is what truth is, this is how you live. You, you do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. Just the implications of what it means to become a Christian and, and to live in a way that's honoring to God. So verse 8 says, Do not owe anyone anything 
except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So as we break this down, <clears throat> number one, the first phrase of verse eight, do not owe anyone anything. Now, a great deal has been said about just that phrasing um, in, in a lot of places. Some of it is associated with some phrases uh, or some uh, advice that's given in Proverbs about money. The general principle is um, if you owe someone something, you are in a sense obligated to them, and that can mean that you are uh, enslaved to them because you owe them, you're obligated to them. There's that sense in the Bible. I do not believe that the Bible says that it's sinful to be in debt. What we do know, it is sinful to be in debt if you can't pay or to get to a position where you can't pay or to be so much in debt you're unable to pay. You know, that, that kind of thing is very unwise and it's sinful. Uh, the idea of having no debt is a good thing. Um, I'm not into economics and I don't know enough about finances to understand how individuals play with debt. I just wouldn't do that <laughs> because I'm not smart enough to play with debt to get rich. Um, and I don't even know anything, I don't even understand enough about it, about it to grasp all the ethics of that or even if there is a problem. But the idea here is just generally do not owe anyone. Uh, so, so that assumes that you're going to live by certain principles. And part of, the, what, part of what that would be is uh, you would have to be an individual who is able to live your life willing to delay satisfaction. You want what you want. You know what you want. You can't afford what you want. You're willing to wait for what you want. Now, the advertising that we get all the time is don't wait, right? Get the special credit card, you get it now, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and they have all these incentives. You know, you go to these stores and they'll say, you know, if you apply for a credit card today, you get an extra 30 bucks off of your stuff. It's very enticing. Uh, I remember when they first started doing that, which is, gosh, probably back in the 80s, maybe. Uh, you would apply for the credit card. They would take 30 bucks off. You get a card in the mail, everything's fine. Well, nowadays, what happens is they'll take the $30 off, but you don't pay anything. They've already charged it to your credit card. <laughs> the new one you haven't even gotten yet. You already. <laughs> so what many people do, well, I don't know if it's many. Maybe it is many. What many people do is, let's say you had cash. I still have 200 bucks in my pocket. I can still go spend that money. Because I, you know, I mean, <laughs> you just spent whatever it was, but people have this idea because you still have that money, and so that's how people get in trouble. Um, and uh, these companies, they do know that, um, and basically they don't care. Uh, the idea is either way. So you want to make sure you live your life in such a way that you don't owe anyone anything, period. Uh, and that's just, and you read that again in the Proverbs, and it's just a wise, a wise way to live. 
Uh, we trust the Lord to provide for our needs. The way we evaluate our needs and our wants and understand the difference uh, comes with maturity. Uh, some individuals aren't raised to where they understand that. It can be learned. Uh, it can be difficult, um, to say the least, for some, uh, because they've just never thought about it. Part of that is compounded because, again, you know, some people don't like hearing this, but we do live in a wealthy nation. And as a result of that, uh, many people have grown up never having to wait for anything. I mean, that's why we do have convenience stores, because it's convenient. You know, <laughs> it's why wait, you know, I don't know about you, but I, may, maybe you've been the kind of individual who's gotten upset on Christmas Day because the convenience stores are normally open on Christmas Day. We're used to that. If the one down the, down the street's not open, it's almost like, how dare they? Don't they know I need to get some whatever it is, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. So uh, we do live in a very different world, to say the least, but... This is, again, something that we do need to take very seriously uh, when it comes to what's uh, not owing. Just so you know, in the prison system, guys get in trouble all the time with this. A guy uh, goes to jail or to prison. Uh, he doesn't have any money on his books. Uh, it's time for commissary, and that's where they can get sodas and snacks, whatever, that, that will maybe supplement whatever they, they get for their meals, whether they like the meals or not. And because a guy normally doesn't want, and I always say guy because most of the inmates, and especially most of the ones I work with, are all men, uh, but they don't want to wait. And so there's a general unwritten rule uh, in the jail. And so you may have a roommate, and he very graciously offers you, if, you, if you're thirsty, you want a Coke, I'll give you a Coke, but he's not really giving it to you. It's basically he gives you a Coke. When you get your commissary, you owe him two. It's pretty high interest rate. So if you drink three Cokes that week, you owe him six. If you uh, eat cup of noodle, <laughs> you know, that's the cheap form of uh, ramen. But uh, if, you, uh, if you do go that route and eat one every night and you have six, well, now you owe him 12. And pretty soon you, you're in trouble. Uh, I remember back when they used to allow smoking in jail. Um, the cigarettes was a form of currency. And, uh, of course, then I had a... There was a guy that I knew that ran the jail in Hawaii, and he knew the inmates used cigarettes for money. So every now and then he would do what he called a dump uh, to ruin their, um, their hold over people. And that's where he would basically, he would buy these cheap cigarettes, and he would give every inmate like 100 cigarettes. And so if some guy owes somebody a bunch of cigarettes, he could just go and just hear and just ruin the hold that people have over him. But... A lot of times, uh, the reason why somebody wants you to be indebted to them is they don't want, so you owe them 20 bucks, 30 bucks, they don't really want your money. What they want is you. They want, they want to hold it on you so that you have to do something for them later. That's how it works. Um, and mankind's always been that way. So this is, the, this is the idea here that he's saying. But he does say, in line with that, and he does want you to think about this, he says, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. So there's this idea that is presented to us in the scripture, that there is this obligation. Now, this obligation is placed on us by God. We are obligated to love. Now, for some people, that sounds like it's contrary to what's natural. Because we're thinking, well, but I can't help who I love. You know, we, we, you know love isn't something that you choose to do. It's not something that you can have control over. Well, actually, it is. Remember, again, that when it comes to love in the Bible... Um, there's different Greek words used because 
the Greek language is very precise. So this is not the idea where we're commanded to have affection for each other. We are commanded that in other places. That, that is commanded to us to be affectionate towards other believers. But the idea of love here is that you are committed to their well-being. That's really what it's about. You're committed to their well-being, to their physical well-being, to their emotional well-being, uh, to their spiritual well-being. And you are obligated by God to love others in that way. And that's how he wants us to live. So it is a choice that we definitely can make and a choice we are expected to make. It is not based on how you feel. So, there, so you don't have to wait to have loving feelings towards an individual. Uh, that's not the kind of love that he's talking about. So, um, Lance, when did you guys first come to the church? How many years ago was that? Five years ago? Okay, thank you, Julie. So, uh, <laughs> so when, when Lance and Julie first came to our church, so the very first time I met Lance, I had never seen him before my entire life. I did not know him from anyone. I had to ask him his name because I didn't know his name. Uh, it was fairly clear that they were believers. At the moment that I met Lance, I loved him because he's my brother. That's it. I'm a commander by God. There's nothing to think about. There's nothing like, well, I mean, Lance seems like a, light, a nice guy. And I'm sure that, you know, after I get to know him better, I'll, I'll love him like I love others. No, no, that's not how it goes. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even a thing that you think about. It's automatic. And it, and it does work that way. In many countries, uh, to me it seems anyway that it's more visible. Now maybe it was because when I was visiting other countries, you know, I'm the foreigner. I'm the one who doesn't know anyone. And so I, I notice these things more often. But I do remember when I, went to, when I went to South Africa, when I went to Romania, when I went to uh, Mauritius, and I would meet different believers there was an immediate, I mean, it was immediate, an immediate bond, an immediate welcoming, uh, an, an immediate lack of any kind of judgment. This didn't exist. I mean, it was just uh, this welcoming that was really overwhelming. You immediately felt comfortable uh, with these individuals because you were Christians. And so that's, that's what this is talking about here. So as believers, we are to do this. The world in general, not every single individual, but the world in general, the love they have for each other is based on performance. You do for me, then I do for you, kind of a thing. You treat me well, then I'll treat you well. If you love me, then I'll love you, kind of a thing. It doesn't mean they always do that in the strictest way, uh, but you kind of find out that's what it is the moment you either break trust, either intentionally or unintentionally, or maybe you're just accused of that and they treat you very differently, or someone begins to hold a grudge. As believers, we are to operate on an entirely different realm when it comes to that. You know, we are commanded to forgive. We are commanded to not hold a grudge. We are commanded to overlook sins. We're commanded by God to do this. We're able to do this. That may be a little contrary to our nature, but I would say that it's contrary to our sinful nature to do those things. Now, God does enable us to do that. So also keep this in mind, that there are commands given to us in the Bible that in the flesh, meaning apart from the help of God, we may be able to obey them for a little while or in a limited way, maybe with a limited number of people. But the commands that God gives to us are never given to us that way. 
God doesn't say, Bob, you need to love most people. Doesn't say that. You are, I'm commanded to do this. So I'm able to do this as I grow as a believer. God gives me the ability. God gives me his grace. God gives me his strength. God even gives me the desire to want to obey what the scripture says. So apart from God, we are going to fail at this. It's already hard enough already with God's help as human beings to do these things the right way. We're going to fail each other as believers. It's, it's going to happen because we're human, we're frail, and we have all these different things going on. But God is able to enable us to um, give us the capacity to be able to overlook, to forgive, to move forward, and we're commanded to do that. The community that, that all believers are to have is designed by God to be one that we function in such a way that the world will, will see the different kind of life that we possess. It, remember, it's not saying that non-believers don't know anything about love. It's untrue. It doesn't mean that they don't know how to love. That's untrue. In general, maybe that's true. But the idea is that it's the consistency that, that we have. It is uh, the idea that we, we may have very little in common, and yet we have this kind of camaraderie. We have this kind of relationship. Uh, again, when there's tension or when there's disagreement, this continues. Um, uh, and, and so the idea there is that the world recognizes that what we have really is different. They, they may not use all the right terms. Um, it is, in a sense, inhuman. Not inhuman in the sense that we're animalistic, but it is inhuman in the sense that it's not normal the way people do things. It's, it's supernatural, which is really what it is. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about you and I uh, doing good works before others so that they will recognize our Father in heaven. Uh, there's this idea in the Sermon on the Mount um, that we get along to a degree, and there's, to me, it's a very strange um, connection that is made directly in the, in the Bible. And the idea is this, is that when the world sees our unity and our love for each other, paraphrasing, it says, then they will know the Father sent the Son. Now, how do you make that jump? We get along, so me and David get along to such a degree that a non-believer will become convinced that God the Father sent God the Son. How does that work? Well, part of the way that works is it's not just the relationship we have in isolation. It's the way we are as Christians. The idea is that they recognize that this is how Christians relate. Christians are those who belong to Christ. They're the ones who believe that God the Father sent God the Son. And, re and various reasons why he sent God the Son. And the relationships that we have with each other, or the way that we relate to each other, reveals the reality of what God has done. That, that God did send his Son. That's what that proves. Now, we don't make that connection. God the Holy Spirit, I think, will help individuals recognize that uh, to those who are being observant. But, so this thing about how we relate and how we love is very important to God. It is not a minor small issue you know this idea that some people have that I become a Christian I live my life and I isolate myself from others so I have as few problems as possible 
and I just kind of, you know, I, I go to work and then I go home and I stay in this little cubicle that I, that I create, my life, and I have very limited contact with people so I can get through life with as little tension and possibility of, of problems as possible. That is not what God wants from us. God wants us to be involved with each other. He wants us to be active in our lives. Uh, and he, he wants there to be really, he, God wants there to be the opportunity for tension. He wants there to be the opportunity for disagreement. Because that gives God the opportunity to continue to reveal to us our weaknesses, our sin, and uh, reveal to us how maybe far we've come. And, and it reveals his grace, his love, his power uh, in, in healing the problems that we have as people. Um, I know I've said this before. I'll say it again because I would like you to kind of keep this in your mind and memorize it yourself. I got this from Francis Schaeffer. But again, it's to, we need to remember this goes back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And that is, is what are the effects when Adam and Eve sinned? sinned how did it affect life? And affected every, affected every aspect of life. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, at that moment, four things took place. And we see all that in the text in Romans, uh, I mean Romans, in Genesis, uh, primarily chapters 2 and 3. And that is this. When man sinned, we know the first thing is man then became alienated from God. There was no rift between God and man before. Adam and Eve sinned, that happened. And that's now true for every single human being that's ever been born. There's a rift between that person and God. And so that's why we use words like being reconciled, being brought back to uh, the Lord. We need to be redeemed out of, uh, of, in the, of being in the slave market of sin. So we are, we are then adopted by God into his family because we've been alienated from God. The second thing that takes place is man is alienated from nature. And so there's, you know, as you read through Genesis, there comes a point in time when uh, God placed on the animals a dread of man. Uh, and we know that there's, there's, a, there's a, a problem with animals and, and man. Um, you know, they, they, animals can be dangerous. You know, there's, the, the world wasn't that way before. It became that way. The natural, the, the tornadoes and the hurricanes and all those things is a result of sin. This, the third thing that happened is man became alienated from other men. We see that, again, the very first murder. It didn't take, it didn't, didn't take long for that to happen. You know, Cain not only killed another man, he killed his own brother. And when he killed his brother, he, he, didn't, he didn't kill him because they had an argument over anything. And he didn't kill him by accident. I know uh, I saw this, it was an illustration. Obviously, no one was there when this took place. There wasn't like a, a photographer there when Adam killed, when he, Adam, when Cain killed Abel. You know, there was no crime scene. Uh, there were no police then. There was none of that. Uh, but a lot of people have assumed through the years that because the Bible says that they were in the field, that either Cain hit or pushed uh, Abel, and he fell and hit his head on a rock, or maybe Cain hit him in the head with a rock. Maybe he didn't intend to kill him, and this took place. Well, just so you know, I believe that the murder, that it was murder, because A, that's what 1 John says, it calls it murder, but it was intentional, and it was premeditated. In other words, Cain intended to kill his brother, and he did so only because he was jealous of the fact that God received 
Abel's offering to God and not his own. And the way we know that it was intentional is because in 1 John, which I think is chapter 3, the word that's used for murder is, is a unique Greek word. There's 10, I think there's 10 different Greek words for kill in the Greek language. And there's one word that is used for uh, sacrificial killing, the, the way that you would sacrifice an animal. Uh, the Greek word is spazo, S-P-A-Z-O. And that word in all of Greek literature is a word that is never used when a human being kills another human being, except one time. And that's in 1 John chapter 3. That is significant. And I believe the reason why John used that word is because it indicates how Cain killed Abel. Because the word means not just to sacrifice in general, but it means to sacrifice by slicing the neck from ear to ear. So that's not an oops. That's not, oh, I didn't mean to do that. That's not the knife slipped. Okay, that's a very intentional cut. Which then also makes more sense, to a degree, when God then says to Cain, when he confronts him, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Because if you've ever seen the old-fashioned horror movies, when someone gets stabbed in the neck, the scene that they're all looking for is the heart keeps beating, and what happens? The blood... You know, they all dig that. So, <laughs> and that really can happen, all right, if you're, if you're cut uh, in that way. So man is separated or alienated from man. And then the fourth thing that took place is man is alienated from himself. And so all of the various types of emotional issues that people have, whether it's dealing with anxiety, depression, um, paranoia of, of different types, all those things are the result of sin. So we have this decay and alienation that, that takes place because of what's happened. Um, and so all of that is addressed in, uh, on the cross, all of that. Man is restored. So man is restored in his relationship to God. Man will be restored in his relationship to the earth. Uh, when you read through the Old Testament and read about the Millennial Kingdom, it very specifically explains to us how the animals that are normally uh, at odds with each other are no longer that way. You know, the, the imagery of the lion laying with the lamb. Okay, that doesn't happen right now. All right, if you go to the zoo and you put a lamb in the lion cage, the lamb's not going to make it for very long because the lion instinctively is going to kill it and eat it. Um, and then also, there's the imagery of the child playing uh, by the hold of the asp, which is a very poisonous or venomous snake. Again, the picture there is that this animosity or alienation between man and nature is gone. And it is. Uh, man also gets along with man. So the relationship with God is restored immediately, though not in perfection. Man's relationship with other men is restored, not perfectly, uh, but it is restored. And, of course, we have the tools that God gives us, which is, again, the indwelling spirit and, and then the forgiveness and all the things that the Bible talks about. And then uh, man's alienation from himself. We see that, again, in the Bible where there was that man uh, who was living in the tombs, and he would scream at night, and he would cut himself. And the Bible describes this individual that people would come, and they put him in chains, and he was able to break out of the chains, and then he met Jesus. 
And when he meets Jesus, uh, he, he becomes a believer in Jesus. And what does it say? He basically, I'll paraphrase it, immediately becomes what? Of sound mind. He immediately has sound mind, and he sits at the feet of Jesus, and he understands exactly what's going on. And so man, uh, so again, not perfectly, because we all know that as believers, some of us still have things that we deal with, but we have a way to deal with some of those things. So you, so you may still suffer from even anxiety attacks, but you now have a way to deal with that, and it should get better in time as you grow. For some people, it, that may go away completely. For others, it may not. But you're never left alone. And you're always left with a way to deal with that as you grow as a believer. The, the problem I see is that we keep believing the world. And what the world basically continues to tell us is that that doesn't happen. And that you need this, this, and this, and this to deal with those things. And you know, I, don't, I don't buy into that. Um, but all those things are addressed by the cross of Jesus. So back then to these things that Paul is telling us as believers... Uh, God knows these things would be difficult and are not natural in our sinful state for us to do, but God gives to all of us the ability to be able to do this. So we then should be, as you evaluate your life as a believer, you should be disappointed in yourself if you're not improving uh, as a believer. If you, if you don't find yourself getting along better with other believers, it's a problem. Now, if you've been a believer for two weeks, relax. All right? I'm not talking about that. But for those of us who've been believers for a decade or for a couple of decades or, or longer, you know, it's important that we continue to grow as Christians and that we continue to mature. And that maturity is normally going to be viewed not just in maybe how much Bible that we know, it's really in how much Bible that we live. Our patience with others. Um, you know, our lack of grumbling. Uh, our desire to, to, to pray for others, and just, you know, are you having a great concern for the spiritual well-being, all those kinds of things. Um, and so, uh, and of course, again, that goes back to this idea that we mentioned before, that as people see this in us individually and collectively, that then points to the graciousness and the power of Jesus Christ. So again, verse 8, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. And then he says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So he, he lists just a few of the commandments. And he only lists a few because what he's trying to explain there is that if you live your life committed to another person's well-being, then you will automatically follow these things. That's what he's getting at. So, he's, so this is not a list of these are the only commandments we have to follow. That's not what this list is for. It's not like, oh, there's only four. There used to be ten. So I only have to know. That's not what this is. All right? The idea is, do not commit adultery. So if we love others that way we're supposed to, that'll never happen. Because you'll never seek to take advantage of, a, of an individual, re regardless of what's going on. That won't happen. That does happen, you know. There, there's been pastors who get involved in counseling, some individual, you know, lady is involved, she's in a bad marriage, and there are times when he takes advantage, say whatever you want, he takes advantage of the situation, and next thing you know, he's having an affair with that woman. That, that's a sin on many levels. It's not just one sin. But, it's a, but primarily, he is sinning not only against God, against that person, but he's not loving them. Because love is not that. Love is your committed 
to their well-being, to their spiritual well-being, their emotional well-being, all the rest. And so if you are living this way, you will not commit adultery. Uh, and then, of course, it says you will not murder. Clearly, you're not going to murder uh, because that would not be loving. Uh, you, would, you would not steal. You would never steal from them. It's just not going to happen. Why? Because you love them. Hopefully in the same way you would never steal from your, from your own parents or you would not ever steal from your own children or what have you. Because why? We love them. What is interesting though, just throw this out there. <laughs> you know, uh, they're not the only ones who do this, but when individuals get really strung out on drugs and they become desperate for money, you know who are the first people they steal from? Family. And the reason why they do that is because they actually understand love. And that is this. I know where my grandmother keeps cash. She'll never press charges on me. I'm her grandson. That's what they're doing. And they know that. They may try to convince themselves, I'll steal my grandmother's TV, but she has insurance. So I'm not really stealing from her. I'm stealing from the insurance company. That's what they tell themselves. That's what they, they do that. They all, I know that for a fact. I've asked them if that's how they're thinking. And some of them, well, yeah, that's how it goes. And so we, we take advantage of these things. So no one's in ignorance of this. We recognize this and, and understand this. But if I am living the way that I should live as a Christian, I, I would then automatically fulfill the law of God. It means I'm going to obey it. And then the last one there that he mentions is, do not covet. So it's not only, not only will I not steal, I won't even want what they have. I don't want what they have. So if I go to my dad's house, you know, my, my parents are still alive. My dad's 85. Uh, my parents have lived so long now that I think everything they have is paid off. Um, I know if they have cash in the house. I mean, I'm just aware of it. Um, I don't, I never go there and think, I'd like to get my hands on some of that. I mean, I know my dad doesn't need it. And he doesn't. He doesn't need it. But I don't, even, I don't want it. It's not mine. So I just don't, I don't want it. Because I don't, why? Because I love him. And if I, if I go to your house and you leave cash lying around, I don't know why you would do that, but if you did that, I don't want your money. It's yours. I don't, I don't want it. Because if we follow what this says, so, so there's this idea here that this is, again, this is not just, we just obey commands in the flesh like a robot. This is where your heart has changed, and this is because your desires change. Your wants change. So then, as you change as a Christian, if you no longer want what other people have, you'll never be tempted to steal. Because you don't want it. It's just, it's just not a thing any longer. Which is very, which is very free, uh, to say the least. So that's the idea. Then, when the Bible talks about uh, if we if we love each other as we're commanded, we will then fulfill the law. Fulfilling the law then means that you will be able to, out of a desire to, you'll be able, you will live in obedience to the law. But another word is used there, which is fulfill, because the requirement of the law is not just outward obedience. What does God also want? He wants an inward obedience. He wants it to be not just outward purity or outward righteousness. He wants inward purity and inward righteousness is what he wants. 
And so as we love God and love others, that, that's the change or the changes that God brings about in our life. So again, back to verse 9. So the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment. So he, then he says, and all these other commandments, they are all summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. That appears in more than one place in the Bible. Again, that phrase is a phrase that carries with it an assumption. It's an assumption we have to look at because of the kinds of things that people say uh, that we sometimes accept as being truthful. For example, an individual, let's say an individual is thinking suicidal thoughts, and they may actually say this. They may say, well, I just don't love myself any longer. Well, they're actually lying to themselves. If they, if they truly did not love themselves, they would never be thinking of suicide. Suicide is, is uh, and I've, I've read a few books on suicide. I've talked to several individuals who have attempted it. Many of them that I've talked to do come around to this as we talk about things. It is one of the most selfish things a person could do. Now, that doesn't mean that that person is not going through a hard time. No one's saying that that's not happening. No one's saying that they're not experiencing great pain. They may be experiencing great pain. Uh, regardless of what's happened. However, it's still a very self-centered act because I don't deserve this. I should not be treated like this. I should feel better. It's, it's always back to that. Or this will teach them. You know, the idea is to punish them by you dying. You know, that, that kind of thing. Now, not everybody always thinks through it in those terms, so to speak, when they're going through these very dark moments in life. But the idea here is, is the Bible makes the assumption that the norm, and that means by the vast majority, is we do love ourselves, which again is not based necessarily on how you feel, but it's what we're committed to. Right? You are committed to your well-being. It, may, it comes out weird sometimes, but again, so if you, if you want to treat, if, if, you, if you're thinking, well, this will teach them to treat me poorly because they'll feel so bad if I kill myself. In that scenario in your mind, the way they think about you is important. So it comes back to you. You want them to be punished for how they treated you. So you actually do. You are committed to your highest good. It's just that's where it's been focused at. So the Bible makes this assumption everybody's committed to that. Um, and that is true. So here what happens is, is God is not saying it's sinful to love yourself. At the same time, he is not saying, because some have done this, especially when they get to the place in Matthew, some say, well, you will never be able to truly love others until you learn to love yourself. Okay, just so you know, that's, a, that's baloney. Okay? No one has to learn how to love themselves, because we automatically do. All right? Normally, the way, that it, that, well, the way we should say that is, you need to learn to love others. You, we don't have to go into, you know, well, when you learn to love yourself, that's what the world says. And that's what the world says apart from the wisdom of God. So, it's, it's, and again, that's not always based on how a person feels. But remember that the way we feel can be very misleading. All right? Sometimes, uh, in fact, remember what, what the question, there's a rhetorical question. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17 where the question is asked, who can know the heart of man? Or what's inside of a man? And the, and the assumed answer is, no one. Not even that individual. 
That's why the immediate answer is, I, the Lord, search the heart. The Lord knows our heart. We can fool ourselves. Self-deception is very real and um, can be very damaging, uh, to say the least. So that's why we normally don't begin with even trusting ourselves. I, I understand who I am better by understanding what the Word of God says about me as an individual. And it's very sophisticated. This is not some simple thing. It's very, we're very sophisticated and complicated, and God knows all about that, and a lot of that is revealed uh, here in the Scripture. So again, the assumption is, is that we do love ourselves, and he's telling us that in the same way that we're committed to ourselves, we then also need to be committed to others. And then again, he sums it up just to make sure that uh, we recognize what he's saying. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And again, we already know when Jesus was asked the question, well, who then is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Basically, that's whoever you meet, whoever you are around. You do no wrong to others, period. So do it. And love, therefore, again, is the fulfillment of the law. So in these few verses, Paul really comes down hard on uh, how we are to live, what is to motivate us, and what is to guide us. Keep in mind, once uh, again, that, that Christianity at this period of time was still this unbelievably unique religion of all the religions that people had come across. Because religions in general, especially in the Middle East during this time, uh, religions did not ever get into what we would call ethics, how you should live, how you should treat other people. It was all very, very basic. The idea was the gods are fickle, you got to bribe the gods, they're the ones that are responsible for bad things happening or for you getting good crops, so we have an end with them, you give money to the priest or to the temple, they'll, they'll pray or have you do some ritual so you can be blessed by the gods, whichever god is happy or whatever. But this idea that there's comment and commands about how we are to treat each other and how we are to feel for each other, what we're to be committed to, that just wasn't done. You can read all you want about Bacchus, who is the god of wine. You can read all you want about the worship of Mars and the worship of Venus and all these various gods. You just don't come, you don't come across commands about how to treat people. It's just not in there um, at all. And uh, that's what makes, so again, for those who were not raised in a, re, in, in a Jewish religious background, uh, all of this was just brand new. At the same time, there's a uniqueness here uh, with Christianity and the culture that we live in today. The culture we live in today is still very much one that's centered on you, the individual. You need to look out for yourself, you're number one, you have unlimited potential, um, you need to do to others before they do to you, unless it's a nice story and we can talk about how great you are because you did to others what you would want them to do to you, you live by the golden rule, but no one else is going to live that way. Um, and you know, you can do great things because you can overcome, it's all centered on that kind of stuff. The idea of forgiving others and uh, whatnot, it's just that's not the norm in our culture. So even these heartwarming stories that you can sometimes get on various news shows or whatever, they're few and far between. Um, they, they are done and given as emotional support uh, or, or emotional impact. Sometimes those are done to say you can see the beauty of mankind so everybody can pretend that we're all this way when we're not. Because what it's about is greed, getting yours, it's doing to others before they do to you, uh, trying to get ahead, all those types of things. 
So, um, uh, you know, there are, people will talk, you know, for example, you know, I, I, she's used all the time as, as, a, uh, as a role model. Uh, but when you look at the, the kind of life that Mother Teresa lived, everybody is willing to hold that up and say how great it is, but no one's willing to live that way. Glad she did, but we don't live, nobody else lives that way. Uh, and so that's kind of that, that, for whatever strange way, mankind in general feels better. So for us as Christians, what we need to remember then is that what God is calling us to do and how God wants us to live here is really very important. We ought to have an impact on the world around us. But again, not necessarily in an emotional way, though that may happen, but this is the commitment of the heart because I'm committed to God, because I'm committed to Christ, and God is committed to me. God is committed to you as a believer. And he's given you his spirit, not just so that you can be assured of your salvation, though that's important, but he's given you his spirit so his spirit will continue to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in every facet of your life. And that's what Paul then is, is giving us here in these, in these instructions. You going to say something or no? I was. I was just wondering, and it has nothing to do with, it has to do with Mother Teresa. One time you brought up, while she did all the things that she did, that she really didn't want when when help was offered to her. That's true. That she yeah. didn't even accept it. So yeah. it was kind of like she wanted all the. Well, I don't know what all her motives were, but that did happen. Yeah. All right. Verse eleven. So verse eleven. Now he's going to begin to describe for us um, more of what's going on in the inner man as a believer. So that, so that these things he's been talking about, not necessarily would be easier for us to, I guess, uh, uh, implement, but we'll have greater understanding as to how this is going to work in our life. So, verse 11, besides this, so he's been talking about love, and that's our primary duty. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. For now our salvation is nearer they will be first believed. So now there's this call to awaken out of basically like a stupor. It, it, it can happen very easily where, where we can fall into living life and we're not especially motivated to stay on top of things because it's day after day, the mundane, you know, simply you got to wash your clothes, you got to wash the dishes, you got to cook, you know, that kind of thing. And so we just kind of slip into a way of living. He's not saying that's necessarily wrong, but what he is saying is that when it comes to paying attention to how we live, so not those things, but how we live, like how we treat each other, how we approach life, we need to stay awake because we can fall asleep, so to speak, and fall into a way of living that is not this way that God wants us to live. You know, where we can sometimes take each other for granted, that type of thing. You know, it happens in families, right? You know, sometimes we get upset at our spouse because we feel that they take us for granted. They know us, they know our temperament, that kind of thing, and so they just assume we're always going to be that way, and then sometimes we get upset <laughs> when, when that happens. All right, so here what he's saying then as a believer is uh, know the time. And so all he's saying in general is, when you go through all the prophecies of the Bible, again, there is an end to life as we know it. Not just to your life and my life, there is an end to life as we know it. 
There's going to be a time when all this ceases. Christ will return. There really is going to be a judgment. And everybody is going to be called into account. That's going to happen. So be alert. Just wake up. You know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, that type of, of speech, uh, a, lot of, a lot of times when individuals are paid big bucks to come into a, into companies to give a motivational speech, the idea with the motivational speech is to get people energized again to, to kind of once again remember the goal uh, and, and to move forward and get the energy going because they've kind of, you know, fallen asleep at the wheel, so to speak. Uh, when it comes to athletic teams, the idea is, is you might be having a lot of success and because you have a lot of success, you begin to uh, just assume, for example, in football, you just assume because your team is bigger, stronger, faster, you just have to show up and you'll win. Doesn't happen that way, but that, that can begin to happen. So the coach is always concerned about his team, you know, being overconfident. That's what being overconfident is about. Uh, not paying attention to the small things, no longer playing with the same level of energy. Uh, in sports, if you've never played sports, it's kind of hard to get this across, but there's this idea where you can play at 100%, but you're not still giving it all that you've got. There's some intensity that needs to get there. You know, it's the idea of pushing yourself. Uh, and uh, that, that last degree, so to speak, can be very difficult uh, to achieve until the first time you've experienced it and understand what it is so that you know how to push yourself to that place again. So the idea here is, is for us to have that. This is, not, this is not a heavy chain around our neck. This is what makes life wonderful. This is what makes life interesting and exciting. We know that the Lord's going to return. Um, it affects every aspect of our life, our attitude. Um, you know, with all this stuff that's going on, even though I'm sure I get just as angry as maybe the next person when it comes to a lot of the things going on with the various COVID restrictions and, and there's a thousand things we can get into with that, which I'm not going to get into now. But when it comes to that, with all that going on, I still, I still, I actually, I get very excited about life. When people say, you know, you know, Bob, man, it's like, it's like the stage is being set, you know, cause we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to be. You know, it's, it's like there's, there's this delusion coming. I'm like, yeah. The Bible talks about that. The Lord says that there's going to be a delusion that's so great that even some of the elect are going to be kind of, kind of fall on the wayside kind of a thing. I mean, this is just awesome. This is, you know, I'm just like, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't want anyone to suffer, and I don't want to suffer, and I want my grandkids to suffer, but you know, I just know it's part of the package, and I know there's going to be this growing anti-Christian sentiment that's going to continue to grow and groundswell and, you know, I don't want to, you know, necessarily go to jail. And I don't think I will in my lifetime. I think if I was 30 years younger, that would be a very real possibility if I'm going to believe the Bible and teach the Bible as I do now. But nonetheless, whether it comes or not, doesn't come, I don't really care. The idea is, to me, this is exciting. This is what the Lord said was going to happen. Because I'm looking for that day. That day when the Lord comes and sin is finally dealt with and it's done. And it's over with. I am really stoked about that. You can tell I was around in the 70s. All right? But I am stoked about that. I can't wait for it to happen. So even with all this frustration and anger, man, I'm just passing through. It's important. And there's some things I have some strong opinions on. And, and you know, because I don't know when those are going to return. It may be in 10 years, maybe 30 years. I don't know. It could be 10 minutes. That would be really cool. But the thing is, 
is that I'm also excited about this. And we as believers should be as well. It's, it's, it's because what God said is happening is that's what's going on. And um, so that's the idea here in waking up. So we need to know the time. He says it's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. And then he says, because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. So he's not saying these individuals aren't saved. They are saved. But remember that salvation uh, can be described in basically, I guess you would say, uh, in a couple of parts. One is our justification. That's when you come to Christ uh, and and your sins are forgiven. You're adopted by God. Um, You're in his family. And and your eternal eternal, uh, destination is secure. Then there's the sanctification. That's the second part. And that's where God works in us to make us more like his son Christ. To where we become, we're already holy. We've been declared holy by God. We've been set apart by God. Now what's happening is, is God is working in us so that our life or our walk matches our position. So I've been declared holy by God. I don't live as holy as I ought to. But the idea is that I, be, I become more holy in my life. There is greater righteousness in my life that God is producing as I seek to grow in him. And then there's the third aspect, and that's glorification. That is when all of it culminates. That's when the Lord returns, and whatever's missing from my life will be fixed immediately. I'll give a new glorified body, which would be really cool. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I think it looks something like me, just better. Uh, And your glorified body will look like you, just better. I don't know what that means, so don't ask me. All right? Because you get asked all the weird questions. Huh? No, you will look like you. You are not going to look like Jesus. He looks like him. You're going to look like you. Some people ask this question, so will I be thin? Don't ask me that. I have no idea. Okay? I don't know. All right? And, 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 and don't ask me to comment on your weight or my weight. All right? All right? But the idea is, so your salvation, or we would say then the aspect of our salvation, the glorification, obviously it's nearer now than we first believed. Because the Lord knows when he's going to return. It's a fixed date. He's the only one who knows it. Hasn't shared it with anybody. He's not going to share it with anybody. But whatever day that, that date that is, whether that date is in a year or if that date is in 100 years, clearly we're closer now than we were 10 years ago. And so as a result of that, keep that in mind uh, as we live and pay attention to what he says uh, here when it comes to how we are to live. Our time is up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your kindest grace and love. We thank you, Father, for your patience with us and again for really the clear teaching of Paul here. Uh, And we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to uh, recognize the great importance of loving others and fulfilling the law. Father, I pray that this would be an area of great concern. Not, Lord, that we would worry about it, but, Father, one that we would long for. To be able to live, a, to live life in a way that is so fulfilling and satisfying. One, Lord, that pleases you in every way. One, Lord, that will increase our joy and increase our sense of contentment. Thank you, Father, for being so patient with us. We do ask that you would use us any way you see fit in the lives of others. We want to make a difference in the lives of others, Father. Whether that's in the life of one person, or the life of ten or a hundred, it doesn't really matter. We want what you want to be done. Father, help us to find our satisfaction in you. We ask now you would dismiss us with your grace, that you would watch over us, that you would keep us safe until we gather together again. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.